Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Sophia Hayes. Sophia has a passion for combating climate change. She's a chemistry professor at Washington University. She'll share how we can start taking steps today to control greenhouse gases, clean up emissions, and be bold agents of change. I would like to be a bold agent of change. Well, thanks for having me here to talk about it. That's great. <laughs> Thank you, you can Sophia. be a bold agent, indeed. So let's talk about that. I mean, so first I want to tell everyone you were a speaker at our Bold and Brilliant Women event for TEDx Gateway Arch, and you talked about sciencing the heck out of climate change. And you had a positive message, which we love that, right? Because we've had a lot of like not so positive messages. Well, go ahead. Talk to it. Yeah, we want to say that there are technologies that exist today to help capture CO2. There are a number of different approaches that people can take, and scientists and engineers are working on these. And it was only to communicate that to a broad audience so that people who hear all of this bad news about the climate and what's coming at us, that yet there are ways that we can address it if there is enough, let's say, will by society and by people. To right. So this was amazing. There, we can address this. It's not, there are things already in place that can be done or that, that we've got enough of everything to put it together to make it. So that's the big question. Why aren't we? Yeah, well, that's a harder question. Those are the socioeconomic questions that we scientists don't normally deal with. We just work in the lab and, you know, come up with these new schemes. I mean, there are simple proposals like planting many, many trees. And while that might seem naive, they are a great CO2 sink is what we would call them. They can suck up CO2 from the air. But in addition... When you have what's called a high concentration source, like a chimney coming from a power plant or out of an industrial factory, if you could capture that CO2 and then you're keeping it from entering the atmosphere to begin with, that's a great strategy. So there are materials for doing that already. They're just expensive at the moment. Okay. And it's because they're in development. And when you start to bring something to full scale... Then there's the possibility of finding cost savings. Again, an economic problem more so than we in the lab deal with most. Exactly. But there's but I love that there there's thoughts on how this can happen. It's just a matter of getting everybody else to the table. <laughs> you know, to to say, "All right, we're the scientists. This is what we know." Now you economic people and all you have to get together and figure out how to make all this work. Yeah, so think of this as an add-on to a power plant. And I used the analogy in the talk to say, you know, we all have catalytic converters on our cars. And there was a day when those didn't really, they weren't really part of an automobile. And we started putting those on cars to solve acid rain pollutants. And so by the same token, you could have an add-on to a power plant, for example, where you are now addressing the CO2 that it's emitting. And again, it's using new materials that are coming out all the time. Um, Some scientists are working on these special solids that capture CO2 and hold it. I use the analogy of a sponge. It has the CO2 stick to it, but only temporarily. We can squeeze that CO2 out again, for example, and use it like a chemical. It's fascinating. What do you do in your day? Like, you know, today you're going, I know, you've got, you've got, you're changing the oil or you're changing your pumps or something today. (laughs) What does your average day look like while you're here in St. Louis? 
Well, so as a professor Mm -hmm. um, at Washington University, I have both teaching and research missions. And the research mission is a kind of teaching because I'm teaching graduate students how to conduct research. So uh, today in my day job, I'm teaching a lab course. So I have undergraduates who are learning these techniques that we use in chemistry. And so, yes, I'm changing pump oil, something that we do (laughs) on occasion, much like uh, Jiffy Lube. And so uh, these are scientific pumps. But uh, so the two missions are teaching younger students, both graduate and undergraduate, and the scientific enterprise. And then the research enterprise is in my time when I'm not actually teaching class, then that's time that we explore these unexplored territories. So people make new materials and they want to understand their structure. And there are various ways that we chemists kind of come about telling people what that structure is. And there's various techniques. Mine happens to be a kind of molecular fingerprinting technique. So I would call myself a spectroscopist. Ooh. So we look at the fingerprints of molecules and tell tell other people, hey, here's how you can make your material better. Really? That's so cool. So someone has, so let's talk about a project you've done recently. I mean, or, you know, or that, that, that just comes to mind about that. Like sure. that, looking at something and making it better. What does that look like to the people like myself who are not scientific minded? So let's think about a sponge. Just picture your kitchen sponge right now as okay. an analogy. And so if you looked microscopically down into those pores and all those little tunnels, there are sticky places that things glom onto. And so yes. I can look at the places where CO2 sticks. So imagine that the curved surfaces happen to be better as opposed to sort of the the edges. Let's just say that that was true for CO2. So some of what my technique is able to say is, gee, if you had more of those curved surfaces or if you had more of these types of features, then it can absorb more CO2 and then it becomes a better material. So make more of that. You know, that's the kind of... Yeah, how cool. So we map those out. And so providing that insight is really key because people who are really good at making these things, you know, um, what we call synthetic chemists and material scientists, they make the materials and then they just need another um, way to see what's going on inside at a microscopic level. Very interesting. Oh my gosh. How cool. So in your talk, you said planting trees. That's one of the things that, I mean, kind of like everybody could do, like maybe give give up on part of your yard, (laughs) plant some trees back there. But are there other things that we, like the everyday person, can do that that you could speak to? Yeah. So first of all, it seems kind of simple. In your daily life, certainly all kinds of recycling and reusing of materials, everything that we don't have to recreate. This is kind of common knowledge, I think, at this point. Right. So to address CO2 directly, Ways to minimize that are the simple things, cutting back on energy use, cutting back on driving, switch to an electric vehicle. Electric vehicles, of course, also have a CO2 cost. Somebody has to make that energy Right. But the ability to concentrate all that CO2, if it's not coming from your gasoline engine, it's going to be coming from a power plant where it's easier to trap. So, for example, if we switched rapidly to battery vehicles, which have their own environmental costs, no doubt. But still, those kinds of things can help at the individual level. But in addition, here societally, we need more support for the kinds of policies that address high levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we've seen generations of climate change denial. We've seen all sorts of other things that have prevented society from moving in the direction to address these problems. And so support for these at a uh, grassroots level, 
reaching out to your members of Congress and saying, hey, this is important to me. Those are the things that every individual can do. And it's pretty much easy just showing that you have show support for these kinds of initiatives. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. Let your voice be heard, as they say, right? We're in America. We can still do that. All right. We are going to take a break. We'll be right back with Sophia. Okay, so I'm back with Sophia Hayes. So, I mean, let's talk about you. You as a person, like when, what, how was your journey to become what you have become? How did you get here? Oh gosh, you know, it is so circuitous of a pathway. Um, I was an undergraduate and I stumbled down the wrong hallway. And (laughs) as a freshman, this is true, um, ended up in a research lab where all of a sudden some grad students were outside in the hallway saying, hey, are you here to sign up for research? And I said, wow, that sounds like fun. And so I ended up doing research as a freshman, even though I hadn't, you don't pick majors um, at Berkeley where I went to school. And so you just kind of come in. And so I did all my classes kind of out of order. And I was taking some science, but I hadn't quite decided on the direction. And so Having ended up in that hallway and starting to work in a lab, um, it just, I caught the bug and that is how I ended up on that trajectory. So it wasn't quite planned that way, I guess, but I had great research experiences as a young person. And so my favorite times in school as an undergraduate were in the lab, sort of making discoveries. And I gravitated towards that fingerprinting technique called magnetic resonance. I sort of had, a, I guess, an affinity for it even uh, back then. And so uh, when I went to grad school, that's what I pursued. So so pre-college, I mean, you weren't the kid with the, the microscope or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yes, I was uh, pretty much along those lines. I went to some California schools where uh, the period of the day had been shortened by an hour. So our science programs weren't quite as strong as they could have been. Ah. Certainly not as strong as what I see out here in Missouri. And so even though I was scientifically inclined, I didn't have as much exposure maybe as most. Okay. So, um, but it was okay still. I was always interested in what things look like close up. So I had a microscope for that reason. And I was usually pretty grossed out in what showed up in our pool during the winter time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, okay, I always think, what's in there? Like, you know, we clean out the pool every year, but then my dad, so we had just one of those above the ground pools. Sure. And my dad would put the cover the over, over it. And then within there, you know, of course, water would get in there. And as spring would start happening, it would be this like weird, brown, yucky looking water. And then... I would go look at it under a microscope and be like, ew. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. The little, you know, but I mean, it was, it was super interesting, but I was like, ooh, that's what's in there. Wow. There's a, I mean, there's a lot going on in that it's water. It's very groovy. Yeah. Very groovy. Yep. Yes. Yep. So. so amazing things, you know, but I would not have known what to do with it after. I just liked looking at Like I thought I wanted to mm-hmm. be an astronomer, but I only wanted to look through a telescope and be like, yep, there's a star. Saw a planet and there's a nebula. But I didn't want to have to like do any mathematics around it. Yeah, I think that most of us love astronomy, right? We can all relate to looking up at the stars and right. being sort of awed by them. And uh, so, yes, then you look at some of the astronomy journals and then you think, oh, wow, this is what astronomy is all about. This, this and seems kind of like I don't want to do this tough. now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it takes a long time for a exciting thing. Exactly. No, yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, those are... It, there's, they're great scientists out there, and so they do terrific work. That are infinitely patient. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so talk about your family. 
Yeah. So uh, I grew up in California. Okay. And my uh, dad is an engineer. And so he was an electrical engineer and worked at Jet Propulsion Labs. So maybe this was... Really? And my mom uh, was trained as a classical musician. Uh, she and he both grew up overseas and so uh, came to California and uh, raised us. So uh, my mom was a homemaker at first and then um, started working later on. And so both of them raised me to be curious and independent and luckily uh, think independently. So that turned out well for the science uh, gig. How cool. So, yeah. And then and then, did you, how did you get here to St. Louis? So like many of us in academia, you go where you're sent, kind got of like ya. the military. And got so uh, I got a job offer from WashU and came out here um, in 2001. So uh, it, the field you've that I'm in. Here. Yeah, yeah, I've been here for been a while here. now. Yeah. Um, magnetic resonance, my field, uh, this is one of the top places worldwide, was here in town. Really? So I was very fortunate to get a spot. Yeah. How cool. Incredible honor. So, so St. Louis really is your home now. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, and it's, so, I thought, you know, you seem from here, right? And so, but you started in California. Yep, that's uh, that's my childhood. So, uh, and studied overseas in Germany during graduate school and postdoc, and so I got a little dose of other things. Well, that, so. so that's how you know the big, the all the <laughs> yes, long the, titles, the, the very that, long titles. Talk about that again. That that you can get several doctorates. Is so that it? So it's a second. It's almost like a second doctorate. It's called habilitation, okay. habilitation, and so they end up with a second title. It's almost like writing a second thesis, and that's just part of their training. Oh, it's interesting. It's just very different than here. We do not do that here, for the most part. Yeah, but then they get big, long titles, which they makes do. them seem so cool. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very oh, distinguished. Wait, so what part of Germany? So Münster, Germany, which is in the northwest, kind of near Dusseldorf. Cheese. And, There's a cheese from oh, there. Oh, it's a different <laughs> Münster. But indeed, oh, it is? Münster, oh, dang. Münster means monastery. So, uh, oh, gotcha. So north, northwestern Germany, and then also in Dortmund, which is a uh, famous city, big soccer town with uh, BVB. or. What was your favorite thing to do there? I love learning about where people have traveled and what they're, especially places I've never really heard of. I mean, I haven't heard of this here. I thought cheese came from Munster. No, it doesn't. You know, we, uh, what I loved there were the German colleagues. We had this great student group and they took um, us in, we Americans, that is, and they were so uh, friendly and welcoming and teaching me German while I was there, and uh, they were very patient uh, with my bad German. <laughs> but uh, we were a very close-knit group, and we would do research until all hours, sometimes ending 10 o'clock at night, and then we would go for dinner and have just large beers and tiny <laughs> little bread roll, and uh, it was uh, it was great. It was a great time and very creative, and they're um, a very energetic and fun group. Lots of great science got done. Oh, fun! Years. So yeah, it was terrific. So working with your, what was it like to put your TEDx talk together? Because you actually you auditioned. Yes, and, I had a pitch, and we were like. Ooh. Oh, I'm so glad you heard that. Thank you. <laughs> no, you were very memorable. Well, I don't remember the pitch exactly, but I can just say that, you know, my daughter and her friends who had formed this club, the Save the Earth Club that I highlighted in the talk, um, I'm doing this research on CO2 and I'm working with these fantastic people who are making new materials. And the kids are telling me how upset they are about all these environmental problems and species dying off and horrible things, you know, the, the images that sell newspapers, unfortunately, well, that are really yeah, dire. And right. they are 
it is a dire situation. And yet I said, well, sweetie, you know, there are people working on this. And so these little girls, and they were, they were little then, uh, older now, but they said, Mama, you've got to go tell people. They need to hear this. They need to know someone's working for them. And I said, someone? Hundreds of us, thou- you know, thousands of scientists are working right. on this now. And I think that message wasn't getting out. And that's what's so great. I agree. About the it was feeling, it, it did feel hopeless, like nobody was paying attention to it. And, you know, the non-scientists of us are like, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so I, I, I loved your message. I felt like, good, yes. You know, well, and that's the thing, honestly, that I just love about TED Talks is, I always think if you feel like the world is going to end soon, just go watch some TED Talks and you'll know people are actually working on all of it. Exactly. So people are working on it. We don't normally have a platform like that. We scientists aren't trained. So the great thing about TED and that whole group, you know, the Gateway Arch group, is that they said, you know, we appreciate that you like showing these great, crazy chemical structures and these other <laughs> data. This going to fly for the audience. <laughs> but, but let's, let's really boil it down to the points that will connect well with people. And I learned a lot from that because, of course, the talks that I give to my community are very different. They're meant to convey other kinds of information. And that's not really what's important for the TED platform. Right. And so that was a really important message. And I hope I can say that... Actually, what I did from the TED training is um, I was doing testimony to this House subcommittee just a week later. And so I was able to use some of the techniques that we learned together. Oh, cool. um, Because connecting with those individual members of Congress was more important necessarily than the content. And so uh, so I completely changed my testimony based on that really? training. Oh, yeah. oh, my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, because you have to be able to communicate this to the everyday person. Exactly. I love it. I'm glad we could help you out there. Oh, big help. Yeah. Well, it was a good good place to have to do that. And yes. Important work. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sophia. Yeah, We're going to take another break, and we will be right back. All right. We are back at this question time. So you talked about doing research. Um Tell me about a country or a place that you did research that you that was like really exciting. Oh, for sure, Germany. I mean, it was just terrific. The infrastructure they have is very different. The way they do science is a bit different. And uh, it was just a great way to frame what we do here in the U.S. differently. Okay. So you, so what their infrastructure you brought back here? So you're like, hey, they got a good idea over there. Oh, all the time. Yes. Really? Dozens upon dozens of ideas. Yes. It's just things are done differently. So it informs how we might go through a process of constructing a project or how we treat data. I mean, there's so many different ways. So the cross-pollination of those ideas is really, really important. Very cool. And it seems like in the science world. It seems like that's a thing where people, like, like there's a lot of international relations. They're oh, like absolutely. People, that's, I mean, we, we, we could learn from that in many ways. Well, we lead the world in many ways many in ways. research. And so we also ought to share that as broadly right. as we can, but also be willing to take in from other countries because they do things differently. So I love that. Um, you spent a summer in Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Learning Japanese art because mom, right? You are one quarter Japanese. Yeah, quarter Japanese. Correct. Yes. Okay. So, what did you learn about Japanese art? Oh I'm my gosh. totally interested in this because I want to go to Japan. <laughs> so, so much. Um, 
first of all, because of that strong cultural association, I would go to Japan to be with my relatives. My okay. grandparents lived there. I had a treasured aunt who lived there also, and she um, almost adopted me as her daughter. Aww. So in that time, um, I grew to understand many aspects of Japanese anthropology and culture better by studying the art. And so the art was very diverse. It was everything from no drama, N-O-H, no drama, to um, tea ceremony, to the calligraphy, and to some basic martial arts. Okay. And so, and pottery. So it was a little bit of everything. It was a very immersive experience. You lived in a shrine, actually, a Shinto shrine for that time. And it was meant to spread that Japanese art. And so I can understand the cultural aspects a bit better having studied those various forms of art. So I thought that was really enriching. And um, so much of science is also creativity. Right. So the intersection between science and art is also very important, I think, and something we don't explore enough in our training. And I feel like, um, I mean, so for me, never, ever have, I've never been to... Japan or you know any no Asia I've never been over there right so what it seems like such a very different culture than ours like you have I feel like you would learn so much and see things in such a different way by experiencing that so it's hard to say because I've been raised with many many kind of cultural underpinnings okay. some of them are inadvertent um, so it's hard for me to separate that out, but the individual is de-emphasized, I would say, largely in Japanese culture. And so it's the group identity and concepts. Um, there are words for it in Japanese that I don't know if we have. There are two words, giri and gimu, two Japanese words to indicate sort of an obligation to your family or to the group, sort of to your ancestors. And so um, there are concepts of ethics that really um, underpin many, many aspects of life there. And so I don't know as a tourist visiting if as much of that comes through. No, I yeah, I can't imagine it would. But you see that. I mean, so this practice of art, for example, um, when we were getting trained, we were working with masters in each of these disciplines, which was an incredible experience to have. But they would tell us that the training really is that you start almost as a shop hand sweeping the floors normally as an apprentice and that there's no actual practice of the art initially. And so that fits with this kind of idea of, again, sacrifice and service and so forth. Interesting. But, uh, wow. I mean, this is a very deep dive into things that I'm not really trained in, you know. But, 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 I, but. I think it's a awesome perspective. It's a, I mean, I like knowing this, right? Yeah. I think that that alone can make your trip even more meaningful because you're thinking about that and looking at that. Yeah. You know, whereas in America, we're like, it's all about me. Everybody look at me. I got my own podcast. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. we, you know, it's like it's like we're we're all about the individual rising kind of thing, right. you know. It's whereas, very different. yeah, I mean, and not that's you you have to. I always think of well, we're really all one. Like we're all connected, and so if we could keep that at the forefront, then maybe we wouldn't allow people to go into poverty and you know, no, 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 yucky blah the stuff. Yeah. So that's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. So from your childhood, is there a favorite book? Oh, so many. Um, you can say more than one. Oh, my goodness. There are just so many. Uh, I, I loved, it. let's see what comes to mind. I loved Watership Down. I loved the whole Lord of the Rings series, of course, like many scientists. Um, I loved uh, the Chronicles of Narnia as a little person, I think. 
I read a lot of Nancy Drew. You know, I loved mysteries and science fiction and fantasy. There's just, oh, so many. Um, those are the ones that come to mind. So usually. Lord of the Rings, I did not know that this was a big thing with all the scientists. All the scientists, not all, but most of the scientists I know seem to really like fantasy, the ones that are reading. Uh, yeah, just somehow um, alternate worlds, alternate languages, the immersive experience. I th- for some reason, that goes with maybe nerdy science culture. But also reason. maybe the creativity. I read, and I don't know who said it, but I read a quote recently that someone said, science fiction is just the reality that hasn't shown up yet. <laughs> That's a pretty good. You know, and I was like, because like, hmm, in many ways, I mean, you see something like that. I mean, and it may not translate right from the, you know, what you've read or seen on a, on a movie or whatever. But later on, you kind of, I mean, the Jetsons, they were doing the whole looking at each other, talking on the phone. We do that now. There is a lot of futuristic um Speculative fiction, I think, is the uh, euphemism for uh, science fiction. That, I love um, it. They, uh, but many things have come true. If you look at some of the works of William Gibson and predicting, um, for example, the internet and the World Wide Web and those kinds of things and the immersive experiences of virtual reality, there are many predictions that are now coming to pass. And so some people had the foresight to uh, put that down on paper. So now, hey, that's, yeah. there's some, get ready. That's We're preparing right. you. Read this book. Well, thank you, Sophia. This has been thank wonderful. Thank you for having me. I love it. So tell people where they can find out about you and your research and what you're doing. Washington University. Yeah, Washington you're University. There. Uh, Sophia. Uh, if you Google Sophia and magnetic resonance, I'm pretty much you're all over the name. place. Yeah, awesome. so those, that's my area. Well, thank thanks for you. Me. And everyone out there, you have been listening to Mishmash. Please go to iTunes and subscribe. Thank you. Bye.